Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. The scripture today is from Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into the village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks why you're untying the colt, just say the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, Why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, The Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they'd seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Today is the first Sunday in Lent, which began on Ash Wednesday, marking the 40 days leading up to Easter. And that doesn't count the Sundays in between, because each Sunday is supposed to offer us a little taste of Easter all along the way. It's historically a season of repentance, to turn from the things that are not of God and to turn very intentionally towards the resurrection life. It's meant to mimic a little bit of the 40 days of fasting and prayer and abstinence that Jesus experienced in the wilderness when he was compelled there by the Holy Spirit after his baptism and before his entrance into public ministry. It's not a perfect comparison, but it's still a really meaningful time of preparation for Christians throughout time and around the globe as we approach events of Good Friday and Easter. We're going to spend a little time looking at what have come to be known as the seven deadly sins, partly because they're a part of the story of Jesus' journey to the cross, and partly because it helps us become aware of some of those aspects in our lives that may do more harm to us than we're aware. These sins that do some deadly things to our spirits. These deadly sins traditionally include pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. This concept is a product of people who are known as the Desert Fathers, a group of Christians in the third century who exited the populated life and spent time in the desert wilderness to live apart as hermits for a while, to try and contemplate the meaning of the Christian life. Many of their works and lives are recorded, and they continue to shape our understanding of what it is to follow Jesus still today. 
We're going to spend some time with these sins, but from a different angle, we're following the events that led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ through Holy Week as told in the Gospel of Luke. And specifically, we're looking at the deadly sins that placed him upon the cross. We'll address vanity, greed, envy, gluttony, sloth, pride, and wrath in that order. And even though lust could find its way into our timeline, it's not a natural fit into Luke's telling of the Holy Week events. Vanity and pride are often seen as synonyms, but in this story, there's enough nuanced difference to merit giving each their own treatment. But we're not going to linger solely on these sins. If I've learned anything from motorcycling, it's this. You move towards where you're looking. You move towards where you're looking. And so on Ash Wednesday, we talk about taking aim on the things in our lives that are not of God and letting grace remove those things from our lives. So in addition to identifying these sins and the way they led to Jesus' death, we're also going to spend time on the virtues that have the power to overcome each one. And since Lent is a season of turning, we're turning from these deadly sins and turning towards the virtues that reflect who Jesus wants to be in our lives. And so we get started with vanity. Vanity has a couple of different meanings. It can be an excessive attention to or admiration of one's own appearance or achievements. It can also, be, it can also mean futile or meaningless or worthless. And I think these definitions are connected because we know that our conceited ways can either cause us to chase after the ever-fleeting target of physical beauty or accomplishments, or our vanity crushes to the ground when that concept of perfect physical beauty diminishes or fades. Sometimes it gives way to better pursuits, and sometimes it just leaves us feeling inadequate, depressed, or chasing the wind. I want to say, as Christ followers, we absolutely can present ourselves with dignity. There is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with wanting to look nice or to achieve. So how does this innocuous concern with appearance turn into a bad thing? When that good intention turns into an imprisoning obsession. And in this scripture, we see some ways where vanity can do just that. And that takes us to our first lesson this morning. Vanity won't let you take the risk. Vanity won't let you take the risk. Scripture starts after telling this story, and since this passage begins with after telling this story, I feel like you should hear at least a part of the story that Jesus just told. It's about ten servants who have been entrusted with treasure. Some risked, invested, and had great return for the master who entrusted them with this treasure. One hid the treasure in a handkerchief out of fear. He didn't want to make a mistake, and here's the key, he didn't want to look like a fool in front of his master. Nothing was risked or invested, and it brought no profit to his master. His treasure was taken, and he was humiliated anyhow. In Luke's gospel, Jesus wraps up that story, and then it says, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples, and as he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into the village over there, he told them, and as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus, 
and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. John Wesley, who is credited with founding the Methodist movement, was a very dignified scholar. An Oxford fellow, an ordained Anglican priest, he was deeply concerned with propriety and image. His contemporary and friend, George Whitfield, may have been, uh, had been seeing God do amazing things when he stepped outside of the church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the open air. And people who didn't ever step foot in a church building would come to hear the good news of Christ. Wesley saw what was going on, and in his journal, dated April 2nd of 1739, he writes, At four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile, and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in the ground adjoining to the city to about 3,000 people. There are times on mission trips when I've done some open-air preaching similar to that, and it's incredibly difficult for my own natural inclinations. While I don't really shy away from attention, I'm not exactly looking for it either. I don't want to come across as a guy who's trying to shove religion down somebody's throat, and I typically prefer when a congregation hearing the word of God from my mouth knows that that's what they're in for instead of accidentally walking into a sermon. Something like that can be hard for just about anyone to publicly stand and declare that Jesus Christ came to save a wretch like me. Every single time I've done that, it's been a battle in my spirit where my desire to be seen as proper competes against the Spirit's desire for people to know God's saving grace. And each time I've done it, I've been reminded of this journal entry from Wesley. Like Wesley, I had to make a conscious effort to become more vile. The vanity in me hates that risk. And this isn't the only way to share the good news of Jesus Christ, thankfully. But I have to ask myself when I get too imaged obsessed, am I willing to be identified publicly as a Christ follower? Am I willing to be thought a fool on the off chance that some thirsty soul might find the satisfaction they've been seeking? Am I willing to be less so that Jesus can be more? Vanity, in the case of today's scripture, may have prevented some Christ followers from hunting down a stranger's colt. They may have thought, what are the odds? Does he know, really know that there's a colt there? Are we really just accomplices in some sort of theft? Can we get arrested for this? We know Jesus is already in some trouble in Jerusalem. Maybe we should just tell him that the colt isn't where he said it would be. Do you think he'd buy it? Vanity is being overly concerned for how we'll look. And it keeps us from taking risks. And it can hold us back from obedience. And that takes us to lesson number two. Vanity wants the accolade and the attention. Vanity wants the accolade and the attention. As Jesus rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of the followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in highest heaven. Everybody loves a parade. Mitch Hedberg used to joke that if you're ever watching a really boring parade, just run at it in the opposite direction, and it's like you're fast-forwarding through it. 
I grew up around Labor Day parades. That was part of my upbringing. My dad was a union electrician. They would spend days and hours leading up to Labor Day to be able to build the IBEW 197 float. And there was some friendly competition between the different trades that occasionally just turned competitive. Less friendly, more competitive. Awards were given for the best float, and if you have a group of people that makes their living building things, competing against one another, that thing tends to escalate a little bit. And at one point, so much money and time was being invested, and nobody was really happy with the results of the contest, and it was causing a rift between the unions, they just stopped doing floats altogether. It became more about the accolade and the attention than the reason the day they were there to acknowledge. Not everything has to be a competition. At least that's what my wife sometimes has to tell me. In this passage, we don't know if Jesus wanted a parade. We don't know if he wanted people to line the roads and offer the accolades. Things were ramping up around Jerusalem for the Passover festival, and everyone was coming to town for the required festivities. It's actually a pretty short downhill route from Bethany and the Mount of Olives down to the gates of Jerusalem. Did Jesus really need a colt for that journey? Well, in a way. In Matthew's telling of this event, the Gospel writer references Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, saying, Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem! Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Luke, for this gospel, didn't make this reference. Luke was writing for an audience that wasn't as concerned about fulfilling prophecies of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures, but they may have wanted to know how it is that Jesus entered in when everybody was watching. Jesus entered in not like a conquering king, but as royalty coming in peace. He didn't appear powerful, not in the ways that people were egging him on to do. Be powerful and get these filthy Romans out of our land, Jesus. Kick them out and send them packing, Jesus. Be that kind of king for us, Jesus. Did Jesus want the parade? I think the people wanted the parade for Jesus more than Jesus did, but I absolutely believe he was aware of the significance of his actions. Lesson number three, vanity is concerned about how this makes us look. Vanity is concerned about how this makes us look. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And Jesus replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. The religious elite that were watching these events unfolding didn't want Jesus messing up the delicate balance that they had achieved. They had it pretty good. They could throw the occupying Roman forces under the bus when it suited them. They could also live pretty comfortably thanks to Rome when they fixed, flexed some of their political influence. They were making the best of their situation, and they didn't want some hillbilly traveling prophet messing up their situation. If they were associated with this Jesus guy, especially as he was making an entrance like a royal, and word about this little parade got to the Romans, that could lead to some pretty awkward conversations for the Pharisees. Our comforts do that to us sometimes, too. It really doesn't take me too long to think about the things that I still don't want Jesus to disrupt in my life, even though it's supposed to be all for him. How about you? 
Can you come up pretty quickly with a short list of the stuff that you just don't want Jesus to mess up in your life? I'm guessing you may not have a formal list, but there are a few different aspects of our lives that our baptismal waters haven't quite soaked into just yet. Jesus didn't usually shame people. That was not his typical M.O., but he would occasionally offer the Pharisees a taste of their own shaming medicine. They were cruel with their hubris, and so Jesus helped to humble them. So when he said, so when they said to Jesus, Jesus, shut these people up, he responded, if this huge crowd quiets down, you could still hear the rocks praising for what's taking place right now, only you're too blind to see what God is doing here. These rocks get it better than you do. And the religious elite once again unfriended Jesus and blocked him on social media, and plus, their vanity caused, him, caused them to step deeper into a plot that would lead to Jesus' crucifixion. They looked like fools. They were clearly not the authorities that they imagined themselves to be. They were going to look bad in front of Rome. Their vanity was cutting them off from God's very Son. And that separation for them is deadly. Our vanity could potentially kill the Christ in us, too. And so what should we do? That's our fourth lesson. Modesty is the death of vanity. Modesty is the death of vanity. We have to willfully block the thoughts that put appearances, especially our own appearance, at a level higher than God or godliness in our personal priorities. We don't have to let ourselves grow scraggly beards and such, but we can make sure those things simply find their proper place in our lives. Here's something that should come as no surprise. God is not a fraction as concerned about appearances as we are. God is not a fraction as concerned about appearances as we are. Here's one way we know that. It's when Israel's first king, Saul, revealed the ugliness of his heart that God sets about selecting a new king. The prophet Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse to anoint a new leader. And of the strapping brothers available to select as the chosen people's new king, it's the shrimpy sheep boy that God selects. We read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Church, we get to spend the season getting our hearts right. For Lent, let's lay down our vanity. Can we submit to be more vile in obedience to Christ? It may mean we get our hands a little bit dirtier, but from what I've noticed, regardless of what's on the outside, clean and loving hearts sure look good to God. And so let's invite God's grace in this season to swap out this vice for virtue. Would you pray with me? Loving God, we are grateful to know that for as concerned as we are about not looking like fools, about looking good, you still offer us an opportunity to let our hearts be made clean. That part that you are most concerned about, our compassion, our love, the grace that is at work within us and shared through us. God, let us focus on those things. 
Help us to offer ourselves to your purifying work and submit ourselves to those things that may help us find our modesty, may put to death our vanity, so that Christ may live more fully in us and through us. We thank you for who you are and who you are calling us to be. We pray this, the loving name of Christ our Lord. Amen.